Well, good morning. Uh, and happy Mother's Day. And <clears throat> also want to acknowledge uh, our graduates that might have had their graduation uh, this weekend. Uh, congratulations to you and hope you had a good time of celebration with, uh, with friends and family. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, would you meet me in Acts chapter 9? Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 36 through verse 43 is where we'll be in God's word together this morning. Uh, and as Fabian mentioned, I'm, um, I'm Evan, one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and, and grateful to be able to worship the Lord uh, together uh, in his word on this unusually cold uh, May morning. Uh, but God is good. If this is your first time with us, uh, we have been in a sermon series uh, entitled Living the Resurrection Life, where we have been looking at various passages in the book of Acts uh, and considering together what it means for us to live in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning, we'll look at a passage that will help us consider uh, how the resurrection impacts how we love our neighbors. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand. Uh, as we give attention to God's word in Acts chapter 9, verse 36 through verse 43. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent uh, two disciples, uh, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took him, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you never stop working. Lord, we can look to you as our way maker, our miracle worker, our promise keeper, a light in the darkness. Thank you, God. Lord, we, we need you. And so I ask that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I 
joined uh, various community leaders and local pastors to meet some of the candidates that are running for office in the upcoming election. Uh, it, it wasn't a long meeting, uh, but it was a helpful snapshot of folks uh, that are seeking ways to serve the Durham community. And uh, one lady stuck out to me as I was hearing uh, people share. Uh, she was a, a district court judge seeking re-election. Uh, she had served in her role for 38 years. Uh, and any time I hear that someone has served in a position uh, for decades, uh, I like to, to lean forward and listen because I know that that is no small feat. And this woman, uh, this district court judge, was doing what elected officials do. She, she highlighted her credentials, she uh, highlighted the needs in the Durham community, highlighted the ways that she hoped to address those needs. Uh, and what I appreciated uh, about her is not that she had a revolutionary plan to, to change Durham. It was more so the, the sincerity uh, and her, her love for Durham. As she was listing off the, the various struggles of our community, gun violence, youth crime, increasing substance abuse, she, uh, she talked about why she has stayed, why she has stayed in Durham, why she has stayed in her position all these years. As the needs of the community continue to be ongoing, after decades of service, she said something very simple uh, that stuck with me. She said, I stay, because caring for myself means caring for Durham. For this district court judge, she, she has stayed. Uh, she has stayed because she has a personal stake in this community. She, she feels personally connected uh, that what happens to Durham happens to her. It, it reminded me of what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when he was teaching his disciples. Jesus surveys the marginalized, the hungry, the, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the, the prisoner slash criminal. And he says, as you have done to the least of these, you have done unto me. Hence, you will inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What we see in the life of Jesus is an intentional association with and pursuit of those who are lost, left out, and overlooked. He saw needy people, and he refused to separate their souls from their lived experience. He healed. He set people free. He fed folks. He loved folks. And as he brought transformation to people's lives, he commanded them to do likewise, to love. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, caring for yourself means caring for those around you. Now, what does that have to do with living the resurrection life? Jesus conquered sin and death and made it so that we could have access to salvation in him. And when he deploys his people in his mission, he does not separate their souls from their lived experience. 
as the fulfillment of the law and prophets, Jesus wants to bring shalom. He wants to bring peace. He wants to bring flourishing as far as the curse is found. In the book of Acts, the disciples are living out this reality. They're living out the mission of God. And what we see here is that God's mission really hasn't changed much. Love God, love people. That's the mission. God called the church to be the vehicle through which his glory bears down in every aspect of brokenness in this world. And so the book of Acts, we we see the witness of God's people spreading out. Thousands upon thousands of people are surrendering their lives to following after this way. And as they are doing so, needy people are being blessed. We see it in Acts chapter 2 where people are selling their possessions to meet needs. And again in Acts chapter 4, the power of the resurrection addresses the entirety of our lives. Every aspect should be brought into alignment with God's kingdom. Brian Fickert says it this way, the solution to poverty and neediness is rooted in the power of Jesus' death and resurrection to put all things in right relationship again. Anything that is not right, the resurrection restores and reconciles. From the soul to the body, from the individual to the society in which the individual lives. The resurrection disrupts everything for God's glory. This would have not been a controversial notion in the first century church. It's a shame that it's controversial for some in the 21st century American church. In Acts chapter 9, we, we see a beautiful picture of the dynamic of loving God and loving neighbors. In chapter 9, we, we see somewhat of a pivot in the life of the first century church. Saul the great persecutor of the church, has been converted and is now a champion for the church. Two things happened as a result of Saul's persecution and eventual conversion. First, the church was scattered from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. We see this in Acts 8.1. And if I had time, I would talk about God's sovereignty over his mission, even in the midst of something as devastating as persecution. Uh, that God actually used something devastating like persecution. And uh, we see the fulfillment of Acts 1a, where he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. He's in control. So the church is scattered into Judea and Samaria. And the other thing that has happened as a result of Saul's conversion is that tensions have actually calmed down some in the church. I wonder what that feels like. Acts 9.31 tells us that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. The church was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It is a high point in the church's expansion. We see the gospel is expanding geographically and ethnically. And then we get to verse 36 to verse 43 of chapter 9. And there appears to be a devastating low moment. What we actually see from this passage is the Lord continues to use his people for the good of their community. There's a woman named Tabitha. 
also translated as Dorcas. We don't know much about Tabitha, but the author of Acts, Luke, he honors her in a couple ways in verse 36. One, he calls her a disciple, likely because she was well-known in Joppa for loving God. And Luke honors her by saying she was full of good works and acts of charity because she was likely well-known in Joppa for loving people. I love that. Luke doesn't just say she, she did good works and acts of charity. She was full of them. Why is that significant? People like Tabitha inspire me because she is known by what she is for rather than what she is against. She is known for, loving her, for living her life fully in order to build people up rather than to tear people down. She didn't have time to be blasting other people and their perspectives because she was focused on her mission and her context. Danae Pierre is a woman focused on mission. Danae is co-director of City to City and founder of Foster Care Initiative, and she's also a researcher. Recently, Danae was being interviewed about how to reach the West, and uh, she pointed to uh, the church in the margins as a helpful point of reference uh, for mission. In particular, she was talking about the church in South Africa during apartheid. Uh, She says this, Black evangelicals in South Africa writing to white evangelicals during apartheid had a prophetic voice that developed out of suffering and pain. What struck me about these writings is that there was always a vision for change and forward movement. And those are things we desperately need. She says, she continues on, we're really good at calling out brokenness and sin because there's been so much privilege. Even those that are awakening to privilege or to power they've had for a long time, they're awakening on the side of cynicism. And calling things out that need to be called out, but there's a privilege to being able to sit at your computer or on your phone and be cynical and angry at everything. But the church in the margins has a hope and a deep groaning together, yet a hopeful orientation to what God is about and what he's doing to bring about his righteous reign on the earth. Powerful words. What Danae is pointing out here is that call-out culture isn't the mission. We are living in a day and age of unprecedented cynicism. You feel it, don't you? People are just angry. And part of that is natural. It is actually right to be outraged over outrageous things. We shouldn't be indifferent about what's wrong in the world, and yet... God's people are called to a hopeful orientation. It's natural if if you're not a follower of Christ to be cynical. If the hope of the world rests on your shoulders, the, the, the crushing weight of that will inevitably make you disgruntled. If you think your self-esteem, if you think social action depends on you and what happens in this life, despair and hopelessness is inevitable. And I think that's what we're seeing in this cultural moment. 
as we're still feeling the effects of this COVID age as, as it has exposed in a fresh way the fragility of our humanity. We're angry and don't know what to do with it. But the church is not called to grieve as those without hope. We are called to stir one another up to love and good works, as Hebrews 24 says. Our lives are not empty. They are, they are full. They are full of God's love for us, and that love should flow out as a love for those around us. That's Tabitha's story. She lived with that understanding, that Jesus is the hope of the world. People felt that when they experienced her. What do people feel when they experience you? We get to verse 37, and tragedy has struck. Tabitha becomes ill, and she dies. It must have been untimely, because we see in verse 38 that everyone springs into action to figure out what to do, and they're wanting to get Peter to come to them, and he's in a nearby town. And scholars debate what they were hoping for from Peter. Were they hoping for a resurrection miracle, or were they hoping for an apostle to conduct the funeral for this pillar in their community? They likely were hoping for a miracle since they only washed the body, which it was customary to wash the body and anoint it with spices and wrap it with linen. They didn't do that. They just washed her. And regardless of what they were hoping for, we see what happens in verse 39 and verse 40. It's, it's the climax of the story. Verse 39, the, the widows that Tabitha has been caring for, they are weeping and showing off the garments and the tunics that she made for them. Again, scholars debate what's happening here. Uh, are these widows eulogizing Tabitha and, and just sharing how and why they loved her so much? Or are they giving Peter receipts to beg him to raise her from the dead? It's likely somewhat of the latter. They, they want to justify to Peter performing this miracle because they're not sure that they're worth it yet. Now, I imagine many of you don't understand how big of a deal this is. Uh, up until this point in Acts, miracles have only been performed in Jerusalem and the apostles' ministry until chapter 8. And among those miracles, nobody has raised anybody from the dead. Only Jesus has done that, which just parallels the story of Jairus' daughter uh, in Luke chapter 8. If Peter performs this miracle, it's not only about Tabitha, but it signals a shift of where God is working in the world. That God desires to expand out beyond geography, beyond ethnicity. These widows, they see that. They, they believe that. And it's also a big deal because it would show that God works in the margins. These widows are, are among the overlooked of society. Nobody would have wanted to expend their resources for them, but Tabitha did. She saw them. She thought they were worth it. She, she saw them, and she saw how the gospel maintains their dignity and their worth. 
And what we see in verse 39 is a desperate appeal for the apostle Peter to see it too. Please see our worth. Please see Tabitha's worth. So we get to verse 40. And Peter puts everyone out of the room. Similar to what Jesus did in Luke 8. And he kneels down and he prays. I wish I could have heard what that prayer was. Now, in my sanctified imagination, I, 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 I wonder about that prayer, you know, because you might think that, that Peter was full of boldness and confidence and eloquence, and maybe he was. But I like to think of this prayer as just real human. I, I mean, I could see Peter, he kneels down, does whatever he does need to pray, and just says, Lord, whew, okay. God, we, we got some work to do. Um, I know you can do this, uh, but, but this is some next level stuff right here. Uh, okay, I, I need your power. It's going to be a little awkward if I walk out this room and nothing's happened. Uh, God, God I, I need you to work. He's kneeling and praying, and, and it's an acknowledgement of his need for God. Only by God's power can we accomplish anything. I'm sure that was in his prayer, no matter how he prayed it. Peter prays. And so he turns to the body. And he says, Tabitha, arise. Again, in my sanctified imagination, I would have said to Tabitha, arise. <laughs> you know, God honors mustard faith. And she opened her eyes. And she was restored back to life. And then we see in verse 41, she's presented alive. And I imagine people were astonished beyond words as tears of sorrow are transformed into tears of joy as this homegoing service gets turned into a homecoming service. They are overwhelmed and astonished by this miracle. And now you, you might be tempted to think that the point of the story is the miracle. Tabitha being raised back to life. And certainly, the miracle is a big deal. Like all the miracles that have happened are a big deal. But the point of miracles in Acts or the Gospels or anywhere else in Scripture was never just about the miracle. Because the reality is, at some point, Tabitha died again and stayed dead. She's not walking around in 2022 over in Joppa. She died and stayed dead. Because the point of the miracle is not the miracle. It's about what the miracle means. The, the main point of the story is not in verse 40 where the miracle happens. It's really in verse 42. What happened after Tabitha was raised? Did Peter start a resurrection ministry? Did he start lining people up with corpses? Did people put their faith in miracles? No. The text says they believed in the Lord. The point of the miracle unfolds and that as news was spreading in Joppa, they believed in the Lord of the miracles. That the fame and the renown of Jesus was spread. That's the point of the story. That's what happens when you live the resurrection life. 
You take everything about your life, even down to a miraculous encounter, and you point to the glory of God. Because it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And we, we shout it from the mountains and, and tell it to the masses that he is God. And there's nobody like him in all the earth. Hallelujah. One of my mentors is a man named Dr. Reginald Van Stevens. Uh, he's the pastor of White Rock Baptist Church here in Durham. And Pastor Stevens has been pastoring this historic black church for 30 years. He has seen God work in so many ways in this city. And I had lunch with him recently, and, and I was just peppering him with questions. Because, again, if somebody makes, makes it decades, I want to know how. Um, so I'm peppering him about ministry, about Durham, about the needs of Durham. And, and he began to, to share with me about all the influential people and all the influential things he's encountered over the years and how they affected Durham. And then he, he said this in his response. When your car isn't working, you don't want a prophet or a preacher. You want a mechanic. And I was looking at him the way you're looking at me, like, what are you talking what are you talking about? And he goes on, he says, we, we, we need more mechanics, more cooks, more teachers. Durham needs more practical, loving people. Durham needs, needs people that love. What he was saying is that what, what Durham needs, what this world needs is, is God's people willing to see, living faithfully, and willing to love. That's the resurrection life. We, we have been set free to love God and love people, to be his disciples and to be full of good works and charity. And that's the picture of Acts. The gospel spread because as people believed in the Lord, it didn't necessarily result in them leaving their jobs or their families or their society, even though that certainly happened. Uh, but it radically changed how they lived in these spaces. Believers, they lived to bless their communities because they were blessed by God. And that's the point. And that also points to a major question in our culture today. I've said this before, but a burning question in this cultural moment about Christianity is not so much, is Christianity true? Although that question is still there. The burning question that I have experienced more so is, is Christianity good? What good is it? What good is it to come together on a Sunday morning and hear some fancy songs and a little speech if it doesn't change our lives or our community? What good is Christianity if it makes us alarmist and condescending and cynical and isolated from the world that the Lord God made and loves? What good is Christianity if it perpetuates the divisions along racial, socioeconomic, and political lines? What good is it? What good is Christianity if it, if it does not propel us to bring the light of Christ into the darkness? That's the question I hear more and more from folks that are leaving the church, becoming spiritual. And I don't blame them. For asking it. But that's not the gospel story. 
That's not Tabitha's story. And by God's grace, that's not going to be Christ's central story. So the invitation from our passage this morning is to see. See like Tabitha saw. See like Peter saw. See like Jesus sees. See the world that God made. And with love and hope as a disciple of Christ, be filled up. Good works. For we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, caring for yourself means caring for Durham and beyond. That's what we're called to. That's what it means to be a witness of the resurrection for the good of Durham and for the glory of God. May it be so in this church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are good. In tragedy, in sorrow, in triumph, in joy, Lord, you are good. And you have called a people into your goodness. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you delight in using us to bless this world? We fall short. Day in and day out, we are so consumed by our own situations and circumstances. We're all so consumed with our own proclivities and our own cynicisms, Lord, but you still hold out the invitation. The resurrection is constantly holding out the invitation to be transformed, to be renewed again and again, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of your glory and for the, for the good of this world. Would you make it so? In Jesus' name, amen.